From its beaches and inlets to its forests and heathlands, Suffolk is a wonderful place to visit, but a great place in which to live. And yet what makes Suffolk so fantastic isn't just its natural scenery and wonderful open skies, it's the people who inhabit this wonderful county. Suffolk is full of extraordinary people, of amazing businesses and staggeringly helpful community groups. So the reason why we've put this podcast together, the reason why we have the Suffolk Money podcast is that we have found that there are only three things we can do with money. We can spend it, we can save it, or we can give it away. So we speak with community groups and charities to which we can give. We talk with independent financial advisors and money experts about our savings. And we talk with entrepreneurs and business leaders about places in which we can spend our money. This is a series of podcasts supported by Kingsfleet Wealth Independent Financial Advisors. Not everybody has had the need to see a friend or relative in a hospice. But even if that isn't something that has directly impacted us, we are well aware of the work which they do. But perhaps we don't always understand fully how that impacts on our local communities. It was a pleasure to be able to speak with Judy Newman who is the Chief Executive of St Elizabeth's Hospice, based in central Ipswich, who was able to talk me through the purpose of the hospice movement, how St Elizabeth's Hospice operates, and how it works with the significant support of volunteers. Judy was also able to talk to me about the fundraising efforts that are on the horizon, and a very exciting art trail that is coming in Ipswich next year. So Judy, it's a real pleasure to welcome you today. Thank you for giving up your uh, time, which I appreciate is incredibly busy um, in your new role. How long have you been in your your role at uh, St Elizabeth's? Um, well, as chief executive, just since May. So this is still fairly early days, but I was already working with the organisation. Um, right. So I've been with St Elizabeth about 18 months prior to that as the development director. So it's not entirely new, but the role is new. Yeah, fine. So how did you get to be involved with it 18 months ago? That was interesting, actually, because um, I was obviously always aware of the hospice as a, a real cornerstone of the community sector in Suffolk. But I hadn't really had very much directly to do with it other than um, just being aware of friends and family who had been very, very grateful for the care they'd received. Um, but professionally, I hadn't had much contact with them. Um, and it was interesting. I was at the time doing a bit of um, consultancy work um, for various local charities. And I had been speaking to some of the trustees at the hospice um, about some of the specific issues they were working on. And I, I have to say, I slightly got the bug. Um, the hospice world and the movement around hospices and end of life care was not something I'd been um, very aware of. Um, and, and it just really started to 
um, fascinate me um, and started to lean in. And as you know, when you start doing that, sometimes <laughs> a whole new world opens up a little bit. And I have to say, I've, I've found it absolutely fascinating. And still um, that wonderful space where um, so much has been achieved. You've got to remember the hospice movement's only 30 years old, really, in Ipswich. That's only 30 years ago since St Elizabeth Hospice was opened. And there's still so much to be done. So I think it's that wonderful combination of a great heritage and still lots and lots to, to keep uh, everything very interesting and challenging for the future. So and an interesting space to be in. Yes, yes, and, and interesting times too, which I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to yes. talk about. Um, but on, on that subject, you mentioned the movement of the hospice activity itself. What, what is the background to the hospice movement itself? Well, it's interesting because um, I think palliative care as a discipline, as a health discipline, is relatively new in the world of, of health. And so if you imagine there are for many, many people, um, end of life, um, how they die won't need any support of a hospice. You know, they'll be able to be perfectly well supported by their GP. GP by their family and it, it won't need a hospice but there's this term specialist palliative care which was I have to say a new one on me when originally started having these conversations but it's that idea that for some people they do need that extra bit of support and that might be physical that might be um, symptom control it might be help with their pain relief very specialist pain relief it might be psychological or spiritual care it may be that there's a real need for the emotional well-being team to be involved, for example. So not just for the patient, but for the whole family. So um, Dame Cecily Saunders is largely credited um, with, with starting the hospice movement. And it was in recognition that as a society, um, we really needed to support people through the experience of death and grief far more comprehensively. Um, and the reason it's a, a interesting um, world in terms of from the charity sector is that um, it doesn't sit squarely within the NHS because the type of service that we're talking about really can only be possible with the support of the community. Um, so, you know, our colleagues in, in, in GP services, in GP practices at hospitals do a fantastic job. And for many, many people, that's, you know, that's more than enough. But it's when the needs go over and beyond that, that the hospices really can come in and, and make a considerable difference. So, um, so we, it's an interesting um, development for us as a society that the community is saying, yes, we want to have this kind of service available to us and almost a community acceptance that that means that they are going to need to help fundraise for that to happen. Mm. Um, but it is, it is an interesting one um, because obviously end of life affects every family um, and we all need to have the confidence to be able to know um, how to support one another through that experience and also with grief and you know I know we're going to come on and talk about the pandemic but that's never been more relevant has it how do we support mm. one another through talking through these difficult conversations so yeah so it's interesting and so across the country you'll see lots of different models of hospices because they've grown up with the community in that they're serving so they're often slightly different although you know they're, they're recognizable um, yeah. but in, but all independent so how long ago then, that sounds as though they're quite a modern, in inverted commas, activity. 
yes, from what you're saying. Yes, it is. It is relatively new. So, for example, we had conversations yesterday um, about nurses. Um, so, um, as as you'll be aware, there's um, you know we need many many more nurses as a as an as a country, um, and we were talking about perhaps once upon a time nurses would be very keen to go straight into A and E, and perhaps more. Um, uh, obvious choices to start your nursing career, um, whereas actually palliative care and end of life can be a hugely rewarding nursing career, but it's something that in the past maybe nurses would come to slightly later on, and we were talking about actually that could be, uh, it can provide a hugely satisfying career pathway for a nurse right all the way through. So um, yeah, I think lots of people within, if you think of doctors as well, they might not immediately think about having a career in palliative care or end of life care, but it can be it, it can be incredibly, incredibly um, interesting and fulfilling as a career for them. So it's growing, people's awareness of what that of what that means. But it, it's interesting from us as a charity point of view, because certainly um, I had certain misconceptions, I think, before I got involved about what a hospice did do. And I certainly hadn't appreciated that it was really that specialism, that specialist palliative care um, that, that is provided. It's not just because you have a diagnosis, you may not need to, for example, die within a hospice bed. 70% of the care is delivered in people's homes mm. and in care homes. So the, six, the 18 beds that you see in Ipswich or the six beds that we have up in Beckles Hospital, that's only the one part of the service. 70% of it is elsewhere. Fascinating. Uh, that, that certainly is. And what, what I suppose is difficult is that um, is actually having those conversations. So we're, we are, during the course of this uh, discussion, going to be touching on the subject of, of death and mm. palliative care and end of life care and planning and so on. And is there still difficulty in talking about those subjects within society as a whole? Um, because certainly people who I'm aware of who've had experience of the hospice and the hospice movement are incredibly grateful for the care that it's given. And it seems to have enabled them to be able to talk about the situation, the circumstances that they went through. Very much so. Um, there is still a reluctance. Um, you, you may have heard us talk about the compassionate communities work um, that's really starting to grow uh, across the country really, but that's to encourage everybody to build their confidence to support their own network of friends, families, colleagues, um, right from the point of a diagnosis and having those conversations and not, not being too embarrassed. Um, I think we still suffer from that um, tendency that if you don't know what to say, you say nothing, mm. um, which people can find very difficult. But effectively, um, one of the things that hospices are very involved in is trying to encourage people to have those conversations earlier. So you know for, for us we should be having those conversations now we should be having those conversations with our families um all the way through to well actually i would much rather be um cremated than buried or i'd really like you know get get those sorts of conversations mm. normalized um actually i would really like to die at home for example mm. it's much easier to have that hypothetical conversation <laughs> ahead of time and it's not to say that you, you won't change your mind but it's just useful for your friends and family to, to, to know those sorts of preferences um the, the thing during the pandemic we saw this enormous outpouring didn't we of people getting involved with food parcels doing errands for their neighbors who were shielding absolutely wonderful outpouring of community support but for me the interesting question was if that neighbor that you don't know very well 
is actually experiencing a bereavement and really struggling because they haven't been able to have the network of their friends and family, but perhaps had a very, very small funeral, for example, if they're struggling with their grief, how confident are you as their neighbour to do more than the food parcel and the food shopping? How comfortable are you to sit with your neighbour and have that conversation? And that's not a criticism. I think it is something that we all need to take a breath um, and, and learn how to have those conversations. So we are um, very keen to help as a hospice um, and encourage people to, to build that confidence. And, mm. and not just think, oh, that's that's too much. I, I can't do that. I think we all need to, to get better at it, really. Yeah, strangely enough, only recently I was hearing someone talk who'd, uh, who'd lost his, his wife and had young children at the time. And he was talking about this very situation of people... He said, whatever you say, you can't say anything wrong because it's just addressing the subject and not being afraid to, to do that is the right thing to do. The worst thing to do is just ignore it and just pretend it isn't there. So it is, but there is some training, I think, for all of us or awareness of, you know, just being prepared to listen. It's not what we can say. It's often what we hear that makes the most difference in that situation. And so if you see something around compassionate communities, increasingly that's being spoken about, that that's really something to watch out for and just see how you can get involved. For example, there's some compassionate cafes, there's some compassionate conversation training. There's um, So, for example, we've got a fantastic voluntary sector, haven't we, in the sector? You and I know that there's some wonderful grassroots groups out there and talking to them. And they might have a brilliant set of volunteers who are brilliant at doing what they're doing, say they're doing lunch clubs, they're, whatever they're doing. But if one of the people that they're working with has either got a diagnosis of life limiting illness or going through a bereavement experience, um, that volunteer of that lunch club, they might just appreciate a bit of extra help and training to support those people so so that's something where the hospice can maybe cascade some of that knowledge and that and that confidence so it's an interesting thing but we all it's on all of us I think to, mm. to, to yeah take a breath and be a little bit more confident yeah yeah and as you say we, we've got to acknowledge that this is it's a fact of life um, yes. and it's important that the people around us know what we think and know what we want um but that's really where you you guys are the specialists in all of this and it'd be interesting now just to sort of find out a little bit more about saint elizabeth's as a whole so you say this it's really quite new that might surprise some people who have probably been, been thinking it's been around forever it's yes we've just had our 30th birthday um so that was 30 years and that was very much thanks to um a group of local people in the Ipswich and East Suffolk area who wanted to see a hospice built so it was thanks to the community that it was created and I think it's quite important to remember that that it was a community initiative to get that initial um, fundraising going to build the hospice so um, for people who don't know it's just um, very close to Ipswich Hospital but it is an independent charity and we have our own entrance and we have our own facilities there so there are 18 beds on Foxhall Road um, at the hospice. Um, there's a beautiful garden there. It's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very open, safe space. It's somewhere where um, you, you might be surprised. Um, I know some people um, might think that it's a sad place. It, it's really not. It's it, it can be um, a place of actually relief because by the time you get there, the holistic care for the whole family means that everybody just feels. The sense of relief that they are being supported that they are in the in in very 
good hands. Um, so it, it really is, you'll, you'll hear laughter at the hospice. You know, it, it's a very calm place. It's a very restful place. Um, but like I say, a lot of the care then happens out in the community, 70% mm. of the care. Um, and what one of the other things that I was surprised about that I didn't realise, I knew it served Ipswich and he suffered just from experience. Um, I didn't realise that since 2019, the hospice's services go right up to Great Yarmouth and Waveney. Um, so that's a, a new um, project that we've doing in partnership with an organisation called EC, who run the community healthcare in that area, and they've subcontracted specialist palliative care to St Elizabeth Hospice. So the six beds in the community hospital at Beckles, and again, the community care and access to OneCall, which lots of people listening to this, I'm sure will know about OneCall, it's the 24-7 advice line. Um, and over the past year, there's been 50,000 calls, either in or out of that one call service, huge, huge demand for people just to have a bit of reassurance, peace of mind. It may not need to trigger a visit from a clinical specialist nurse. It might do, but it might not do. A quarter of the calls are actually from other healthcare professionals who just need a bit of extra advice and guidance. So it's providing a hugely valuable role for society. So a lot of that is won't be immediately obvious when you come to the hospice, perhaps to visit someone and you just see the beds, there's, there's this whole other activity. So a big, it's a big enterprise. Absolutely. So when you say that there's care delivered at home, how does that sort of show itself? Um, I think we probably have a, a clear picture of what a hospital ward looks like. And yeah. I guess that's similar um, at the hospice itself. But what's, what's going on in these home visits and the care at home? Um, so we have um, clinical nurse specialists, they're called CNS nurses, um, and we have nurses. We also um, have um, doctors and consultants who are able to provide support as well if needed. Um, but a CNS um, and then a community healthcare assistant as well, and they might be able to go in and just um, assess um, how well the family are coping, um, and they might be able to provide some some direct. Um, advice around medication, for example, um, but it's also very practical support for that family and just making sure that the whole family are, are comfortable and equipped and, and know um, how to deal with the situation. So during the pandemic, um, obviously an awful lot of work was going on across the system, the integrated care system, to try and avoid hospital admissions. Um, so that made that community work even more vital, as you can imagine. We set up something called virtual wards, so people would have the same um, attention of uh, the visits, the planned visits throughout the day, as if they were on a ward in the mm -hmm. hospital or at the hospice. And that kept so many more people at home um, at a time when we were all trying to avoid hospital admissions, weren't we? Um, so, yes, I mean, it is, um, it is clinical visits and within the home. Um, and, and, and so it's very, I think, if a family goes through that experience, um, next time it happens, if you've seen perhaps your grandparent go through that or an aunt or an uncle, when it happens in your family, you'll feel far more um, comfortable, if you like, to know that you will be supported and, and that the home death can be peaceful and managed and, mm. and comfortable. So um, that's a cultural change, isn't it, for us as a society? Um, yeah. It's it's really shocking that if you ask people um, what would be your preferred place of death, only 1% of people say they would want to die in hospital, and yet 48% of us do die in hospital. Mm. So, so we, you know, we need to work really hard um, to try and make sure that people do 
feel more comfortable to be at at home and be supported. That's quite a staggering statistic, isn't it? So um, is that just because that's the typical healthcare setting in which we find ourselves, or is that just because there isn't the provision to enable people to, to die at home? Well, it's interesting. Again, you'll, you'll have heard this many, many times um, and across many sectors during the pandemic of things happening differently, but also really learning from the mm. experience. So um, we have an amazing director of patient services called Verity Jolly. Lots of people will have come into contact with Verity over the years. She was a nurse on the ward at St Elizabeth Hospice on day one when it opened 30 years ago. And she's now our director of patient services. And for many years, she's had this vision in her head. She'd done all of the thinking of what a palliative and end of life coordination service would look like. So, so that all of the services, the district nurses, the GPs, everybody would, would feel supported by this one point of contact, which would help people to be at home and comfortable. Um, so for five years, Verity tried to make that happen. It's very difficult. We put in funding bids. We, uh, you know, Verity had been lobbying and talking to so many people and everyone would say, oh, yeah, it sounds a good idea. It hadn't happened at the beginning of the pandemic last April 2020. It was set up and fully funded in five days. No. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it helped that she'd done all the pre-thinking. Yeah. So sure. she knew the model was ready and ready and fit to go. But it's just extraordinary when you think what can be achieved when there is that um, alignment of the stars <laughs> in terms of the demand, the need, the funding, the will. Um, and, and it happened. So we've still got that in place now. And that is a, a real game changer, actually, in terms of everybody having a, a shared um, sense of vision for that service so hopefully over the years um, and certainly our colleagues um, within the NHS and in, within the GPs uh, are very very supportive of that continuing beyond the pandemic so yeah. another example of a service enhancement if you like that, yeah. that we don't want to lose. In addition to that is the immensely worthwhile work that, that continues at Foxhall Road out or at the or yes. in, in Beckles as you say Absolutely, yes. so that that's obviously a more of a ward process so can you give us let's let's just take your main building in, in, yeah. in Ipswich can you for those who haven't set foot inside the door there will be many listening I'm sure who have benefited hugely from the services of the hospice and and uh, could probably almost sort of <laughs> walk it through themselves but there will be many who perhaps don't, can't picture what it's like uh, could you just give us a little walking tour as we go in through the door and sure. what we might see or what you'd find there I mean you've already described you can hear laughter in certain places and yeah. you know there's a there's a, a, a good sense there but give us a little feel of what that's like Judy. Of course because it it absolutely remains a really important part of the service. There's no denying that. Um, and when I talk about the community care, I think that's more because we're thinking about the projection of yep. the need that's coming our way. We know we've got the ageing population. People are living for longer and they're living for longer with more complex needs. So in terms of that projection of palliative care, we, we, you know, we can't keep building large hospices to meet that need. We do need that wider service. But absolutely, the beds are critical because um, and another misconception uh, you don't just come into a bed because you're at the point of about to die so often it's about symptom control so the the wards that is there it may well be that somebody comes in um, their, their symptoms are uh, assessed and, and very carefully managed 
and then they'll be stable enough to go home and then can be managed perfectly well from home. So it's not always if you hear that someone has come into the hospice to be in a bed, don't think, oh, my goodness, that's they're at their final days. That's not necessarily the case at all. But yes, when you come in, our reception is normally uh, staffed by volunteers. Um, so you normally get a very friendly welcome from one of the volunteer receptionists. Um, at the moment, it's a little bit different because obviously we are having to ask people to wear masks, wash their hands, check that they haven't had any COVID symptoms, all of that very careful um, procedure as you can imagine um, but as you go through the hospice we've got um, a section which um, in the past was much more for outpatients so people who just come in their their bed is still their own bed at home but they do come in perhaps for some counselling um, for some interventions outpatient interventions or also some of the social activities there's a um, there's a small hairdressers there for example so if you are having treatment and you know you've got hair loss or hair damage, you, you may not feel comfortable going to a normal salon, for example. So there's that activity. But when you come through onto the ward, um, it's much quieter, I would say, than a hospital ward. So one of the things that um, uh, with the best will in the world, the wards are often much bigger in a hospital, a lot more activity. So a lot of people are very grateful for the sense of peace and quiet that there is. Um, so we have some individual rooms. Um, and we have a family room. So for example, if the patient perhaps has a young family, they're perhaps younger in age, they've got a young family, it enables the whole family to stay with them, which can be um, very, very powerful for those individual families. And then we have some small bays um, with four beds in each, but the way they've been designed is very sensitive. So the way that the, stag the cupboards are staggered and, and so on, you feel like you have a lot of privacy. And they've got big double doors that open out onto a beautiful garden. So um, often um, you, you'll see that the beds have been wheeled out into the garden so people can feel the sunshine, um, hear the birds, and that can be that can be very nice. So the, the atmosphere, I would say, is calm. Um, we're able to have normal curtains, whereas if you imagine in a hospital, there might have to be the, the washable, <laughs> washable curtains. So every effort's made to try and make it um, a, a slightly different atmosphere and experience. One of the other things that you might see um, is an activity going on. So while I've been there, I've witnessed um, people having weddings in the garden. And um, I've seen a, a renewal of vows taking place in the garden. So the nurses um, will just always go over and beyond to try. And if people do have some things that they really, really want to see happen, they'll try and make that happen for you. So um, there's lots of things. Sometimes the Ipswich Town football players will, will come down. I've seen um, therapy puppies come through. Um, we've, we've had all sorts, you know, if, if someone has a real passion and interest in something, they will try and make that happen. Um, mm. One of the other things I wasn't aware of, um, I said I had a number of things I didn't know when I started the hospice, was about the provision for young adults. So I think we all perhaps think of the hospice perhaps as being for older people. We know often it will have to help people in their 30s and 40s, but there was a huge gap in provision nationally for people coming out of children's hospices and then how do they transition into adult care so um, there's a program called zest um, which is very innovative um, and really quite pioneering for the uk um, we're not good in suffolk are we about talking about our innovations but this is one we should be proud of which is a, a partnership with each um, so if you've got teenagers 14 15 coming through the each service um, they they start to get to know the Zest team. They come on exchange days. 
um, they can start to get to know the building, get to know the team so that when they do turn 18, they can start having their care provided for them at St Elizabeth, but through this CEST brand. So um, on some days, you'll on Fridays, for example, you'll hear um, you'll hear the activities and the laughter of the young adults who are around. Um, and recently, one of them was a, a very, very keen um, Crystal Palace fan. So I think Crystal Palace were playing Ipswich Town, I believe. Um, and so the, the, the nurses were able to, to make a bit of magic happen um, for that as well. So, Wonderful. you know, there's, there's, there's often no day is the same. There's always something else happening. Yeah, but it certainly sounds to me as though, yeah, obviously it's a serious and, you know, sometimes difficult issue yes. to, to work through, but it's not a place that has a sense of gloom and despondency about it. It's something where people are making the best of, of the opportunities that are there. It, it is. That's exactly right. And and I think especially for those young adults, often um, they do still have some very, very strong aspirations to perhaps do a college course or, um, you know, they're very, very passionate about a particular hobby or interest that they have. They just need a bit of support to help that happen safely. Um, so the Zest team are really good at trying to think holistically, not just about the patient, but about that family. Um, we don't tend to offer respite care. I think some people think of hospices as a respite place. For the, for the adult hospice, that's, that's not really possible. But for the young adults, we do provide some short breaks um, because that can be um, extremely helpful to the family and to the other siblings in that family, to, just to have that experience. And for the young person themselves, it's a bit like coming on a, a, you know, a sleepover. Um, you, know, you can get some pizzas, have, watch some um, movies and have a bit of, a, um, a bit of independence from your family because if you're 18 19 that's entirely natural that you mm. want to have an independent night away if you've got complex health needs that's not easy so that's a very special service that we're quite protective of and want to um, always actively try and make sure is sustainable because mm. it, for those individuals it's uh, it can be absolutely brilliant for them that's amazing now uh, it's interesting to then maybe look at the staffing side of things yeah. on this because um, you've already referred to uh, nursing staff and um, doctors uh, uh, who focus on this particular aspect yeah. of care. But what's the staffing made up of? So how, what's the proportions? Because you also mentioned volunteers. Yes, it's very varied. Um, so we have about 350 staff, um, but we have 1600 volunteers, which I just have to blink and think gosh have I got that right it is it's it's um, we're maybe very slightly less at the moment because of people um, coming out of COVID but certainly 1500 to 1600 volunteers now many of those are in the retail um, sector so if you think we have 31 retail shops um, across Suffolk so um, many of those volunteers are retail volunteers and do a fantastic job there some of those volunteers support the fundraising staff so if you think we've got our fundraising department 70% of our funding needs to be raised within the community um, so that obviously takes a huge amount of, um, of, of work um, volunteer goodwill, enthusiasm, support. Um, but actually in terms of the services, um, yes, there are the nurses, there are the doctors, there are the consultants, but we've also got occupational therapists. Um, we have physiotherapists, we have counsellors, we have specialist bereavement counsellors, an emotional wellbeing team. Um, and that will be from the point of diagnosis all the way through to supporting their family. 
afterwards called a program called living grief so looking very holistically at how you support the whole family um so there's it's very broad into it's not just doctors and nurses um those occupational health um that the occupational therapy team and the emotional well-being team is very much part of the the whole service as well as you can imagine for an organization um you know we have to raise about 13 million pounds a year so we do then need a good finance department um hr facilities estates you know as you can imagine that's a sizable organization to look after um and i think i mean i'm not a clinician but i'm i'm very clear that we do need to make sure that we're giving the clinicians a safe professional sustainable working environment in which they can do their work um, the fundraising department and the retail department are absolutely the lifeblood to the organization none of us would be here without their efforts um, so within the fundraising and retail department you've got some fantastic people who are full of energy um, you very kindly got involved in Suffolk Remembers don't you and that was a very special event this year because it was the first time we'd been able to have an in-person event for 18 months and I don't know if you sensed it as a uh, as a participant but for the events team they were all so thrilled to be able to come back out because that's what they do they they do it brilliantly but it was a very poignant event this year wasn't it because I think for a lot of families as well it was the first time that they had been able to come together in person so putting on an event like that um, doesn't take five minutes um, you need again you need to be safe you need to be professional you need to make it happen when it comes to the midnight walk you can imagine you need a huge army of volunteers to make the midnight walk happen so um so all of that activity is also absolutely vital talk through that i mean the midnight walks are really interesting one because people may well have seen something about it but not really understood what's yeah. involved in that and again the the team um organize the walk so that they will at some point will come past the hospice a lot of people do the midnight walk in memory of somebody mm. so it is um, I think it's very poignant that when you fundraise for the hospice, you might fundraise for the hospice just because you're really passionate about Suffolk charities and you know it's important, you want to support for a lot of people it is in memory of a friend or a family member that they've lost. Um, and so midnight walk, you'll often see people, things on their, on their a running vest or their, their t-shirt saying who they're doing in memory of. Um, but the team really do try to make, make it as joyful an event as possible. So at various stations, there'll be music, there'll be um, you know, um, people cheering them on. Um, but effectively they walk all the way around Ipswich at night um, and, um, and very, very, you know, it raises a huge amount of money historically for the hospice, and it is one of the biggest ones in the UK. I think at one stage it was the biggest midnight walk in the UK. Often a hospice will have a variation of that sort of event, um, so they have become quite associated with hospices. Um, but we're, we're very proud of the one in Ipswich, and uh, and we're hugely grateful to everyone who's been so patient over the last couple of years because we had to keep postponing it. Um, we each time we desperately hoped it could happen, but we have to be guided um, mm. by the advice that we get from Suffolk Public Health, etc. Um, so we have to we have to only do it when we're sure. But yeah. hopefully this October it will happen. Yeah. So you're very much looking for people who'd like to participate in that this very year. Very much so. Yes. A great opportunity to get out and stretch your legs. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we all need that, don't we? <laughs> so just returning to the Suffolk Remembers, it's quite an amazing yeah. event, actually, because it's on Suffolk Day, isn't it? Longest yes. day of the year. But I think this year could have been the coldest day of the year, sadly. Yes. <laughs> it, was it was very cold. Rather chilly, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Which was very sad, but uh, unfortunate. Um, 
but it's it's a incredible activity in the sense that it does bring people together as you say that it may have been that they've lost someone over the preceding 12 months but you know further further along the line as well mm -hmm. but just an opportunity to you know in all the celebration of the height of summer actually I think it's amazing that it falls on that day too yeah. but also to think of a local activity to just stop and think for a while and to do that as a community it's very very powerful it is powerful and I don't think we can underestimate how much we all need to have a moment of reflection now more than ever. So every year Suffolk Remembers has had that moment of reflection, um, but we thought it was extraordinary that so, so many people came out, even though it was cold and pouring with rain. And to me, that spoke volumes of what it meant to them mm. to stand there on Felixstowe seafront under your umbrella but in a huddle with your family. But to me, that was very moving. Mm. Um, so it, it wasn't just a, a nice day out. It was, it was very much, this means something and I need to do this. Um, so I, I found it very, very moving. But again, we've got Daisy Day coming up at Worcester Park. Normally, we've in the past, we've had sunflower memories and people have come and had a, a put a sunflower in the hospice garden. And that's been a, a lovely event that everybody really, really enjoys. Obviously, this year, we can't have large numbers of people in the hospice garden it's simply not big enough um for you know with a bit of social distancing and so on um so the east of england co-op has very kindly said that we can use worcester park where you've got mm. much more space mm. and this year it's daisies so we're going to have daisy day and again we've had a wonderful response to that people want to mark the occasion somewhere and i just think this year more than ever don't we need that we really mm, do absolutely we do um and yeah those opportunities to bring people together to have that shared experience is very yeah. powerful um but obviously this does touch on the subject of finance and money yes. and what's happened over the last 18 months two years um so how how are things from that perspective you talked with some staggering figures 13 million a year <laughs> Um, that's one of those figures that I suppose at the beginning of the year you just think oh how's this all going to work? Yes and you can't take anything for granted and we never do. Um, we do have we're, you know we're very fortunate that we have some some terrific support from the community and we're hugely grateful for that. We simply couldn't do what we do without it. Um, so if, if you think about hospices um, there are some people who have said to me oh I don't give it, I don't give any money to hospice because you're NHS funded, aren't you? Well, we do get some funding from the NHS, but we certainly don't get everything. So um, we get about 30% of our funding um, from the NHS. Um, and um, that's fairly typical of hospice, adult hospices across the country. Now, there were a number of years where it had fallen quite a substantially lower than that. And so for about four years, um, we, we had actually running at a bit of a deficit um, and which was concerning everybody. Um, but the, the, you know, the local CCG, the clinical commissioning group, um, they really did recognize that we were providing such a, a valuable part of what we call now an integrated care system. Um, it, that has now come up to about that 30% mark um so we we have a, a four-year contract we always have to renegotiate etc so again you don't take anything for granted but at about 30 percent funding from the nhs then the rest falls to the the challenge of uh, of us raising that from the community um so at the beginning of the pandemic um we had already been very conscious of balancing the books <laughs> um and i have to say last well march april 2020 that was quite a a stark period for us as a leadership team thinking right what is going to happen you know we obviously had to close all 31 retail shops 
we had to cancel all the fundraising events, so the Midnight Walk, um, the Garden Trail that's so popular, the Bubble Rush, all of these activities just had to stop. There was It was non-negotiable, wasn't it, during the lockdowns? It also meant the end of lots of that smaller community fundraising, what we call third party fundraising. So if you and your friends were doing perhaps a, um, something at your village fate, all of that activity dried up. So it was across the board. Um, it, it, was it was pretty stark. So we were looking at everything um, and we, um, we spoke to Genesis, the local agency who very kindly gave us some pro bono support on launching a, a campaign. But I was really conscious that we didn't want to, we didn't want to make people worried that the hospice was in, in fear of closing, because we do have some reserves, they wouldn't last us forever, but hopefully the pandemic would be short lived. And I really didn't want it to be like a scaremongering campaign. Does that make sense, Colin? Mm. So we did here together as the campaign. And it was very much, we're here today, we're providing care. We'll be here tomorrow providing care, but we do need your support. So that here together, I, I, we had such a really generous response to that from individuals, supporters who perhaps hadn't been able to do the village fate or the open garden, but supported here together. Um, and that was wonderful. And um, Hannah Bloom, who's our fundraising director, her and I, we said, if it can just cover what we would have made through the midnight walk, that would be wonderful because that is our biggest fundraising event of the year. And, and, that's, and that's what Here Together did. Now, we didn't know what the year would hold ahead. Mm. We didn't know in terms of the demand of our services, we didn't know what it would mean for our funding. We work really closely within the integrated care system um, on that. And I have to say that they were fantastic in terms of that hub that I described, that palliative care hub. Um, they, the system did give some additional funding to make that hub happen, which was fantastic. Um, in terms of um, the, the local response, we were very lucky that we had some very generous legacy bequests this year that came through. You can't plan for that. You don't know if they're going to come or not come. So that in the second half of the year that we were very, very grateful for that happening and just reminds us all what a huge difference those legacy pledges can make. Um, and then we should give credit to the Chancellor. So um, Rishi Sunak, um, when he announced his support for charities at, at one point i don't know if you remember he announced 750 million for charities for the whole voluntary sector but of that he did ring fence 200 million for hospices across the country so in the second half of the year we did get some funding from the treasury via the nhs which is one-off non-recurrent it was basically like we don't want the hospices <laughs> to mm. be in peril we can't as a society, we need to keep the hospice um, doors open. So we had a one-off funding. So we've had a really unusual year of extreme variances, I would say. We've had the most stark that you can imagine, basically the tap being turned off all your usual fundraising events. And then we have had some um, very generous one-off funding. So we're stable, it's fine. Um, we're very, very, very conscious of the future and making sure that that fundraising tap gets turned back on um, because we don't yet know, do we, what people's confidence level is going to be like, both for retail shopping, attending events. Um, so, so I can't say there's any complacency um, and certainly we, um, we're, you know, we're, being, we're doing everything that we possibly can to make sure um, that going forward um, we maximise all the opportunities we can because um, it is a lot of money to raise every year. We certainly can't rely on any one-off 
bursts like that again because mm. um, I think that was very unusual. But don't you think that's quite typical of whole lots of sectors? It's yeah. lots of sectors, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's been a case of just get through the last. 12 or 18 months and hopefully have a strategy for how you're going to get through it in the long run yes. which it seems like you've got lots of good plans in 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 train and, and and on that what what fundraising activities will we be seeing from uh from saint elizabeth's over the next six to 12 months well i think uh, we've mentioned the midnight walk and the great garden trail some of our favorites that will be returning daisy day for etc i have to say the one big one um that i know that that you know about is the the big hoot <laughs> so we're really looking forward to the big art trail in ipswich in 2022 um so that's already in full planning mode now um so we have uh, 45 sculptures um of huge owls will be dotted around um ipswich in the summer of 2022 and this is a fantastic fundraising opportunity for us but it's something that i mean Ipswich Borough Council love it, Suffolk County Council love it, everybody really enjoys this one because not least of which it's a great way to support the hospice but it's such a joyful event so for those of you that remember the pigs of Pigs Gone Wild um, and then the Elmer Trail of 2019 which just was such a wonderful summer wasn't it, it now seems a million years ago having Ed Sheeran playing at Chandry Park and the Elmers all over Ipswich Town but next year we'll have the Big Hoot, wonderful great big owls um, and that, that's going to be a really fantastic focus for us. We also have all the little ones that go around the schools um, and the response we've had is absolutely wonderful um, so, so we're thrilled to have that one to look forward to and again for that very enthusiastic events team that you saw at it remembers they're all throwing themselves into it heart and soul um so that's the big one to watch for i'd say yeah a huge amount of planning but uh, yeah, yeah it'll be it'll be quite spectacular when it comes yes. together um, so on that subject how, how do people as, as we sort of draw to a close this how do people sort of relate to giving and the hospice you said that there's some who feel drawn because of the experience they've gone through and they've benefited from the hospice's support. But is there a, a specific connection there between the giving that people have and their experience or how they want to see funds used? What's your experience of that? So I would say that from um, people who um, make individual gifts. So if you set aside maybe corporates, because a lot of corporates are very, very supportive because so many of their staff have either had experience of the care or they've chosen the hospice as their charity of choice so there's we get very good support from from local businesses which is wonderful but when you think of families and individuals uh, yes it's it's a very high proportion of people are giving from an experience um of that they've directly had through their friends or family um but there are a lot of people who are interested in the wider um, philanthropy world who are really interested in what our civil society looks like and they can see that hospices are a cornerstone of a civil society and so want to support it more from a um, almost a philosophical point of view it's mm. something that they really value and can see the role it plays um, and certainly during the pandemic I hope that we were able to demonstrate to people both from the service point of view but all the way through to the bereavement support that it is it's uh, the touch points with the community are so vast so there's a lot of people who really are interested in the issue of end-of-life care and uh, want to support the hospice and get to know more about the hospice um you know we, we call it almost thoughtful philanthropy people who are really interested in the issues and want to get to know more about 
what's happening with end-of-life care, not just in hospices, but in the country as a whole. Um, I know when, you know we've spoken in the past about how um, when people really start to lean in to philanthropy and, and their giving and really understand the issues, it can be a very, very rewarding experience for that donor. It's not just a transactional donation. Mm. Um, you really do get as much as you give, if not more, because these issues are fascinating. They touch us all. There's so much to be done. And, and I think that's quite exciting for a, a would-be philanthropist to really lean in um, and get involved um, at quite a thoughtful level. So it's the whole raft from, um, you know, just being very supportive of an event all the way through to really wanting to understand what's happening. And of course, we can join the dots here between volunteering and giving. And it might be that someone to give with the knowledge also that they can see as they were hands-on really where that's being yes. used yeah. um yeah I, I agree with you on all of this i mean obviously the whole purpose of this podcast is thinking about money and you know people spending it in suffolk which is very important <laughs> about people saving it for the long term which is our day job which i think is very important but also about where they give and what where they use their money because there's really only those three options so um yeah how people give it it's it's critical that as you say, they see how it's used and the benefit that it has to individuals and society. And if they do that, then it does enhance their own both self-esteem and their own positivity of, of interacting with those organisations. So it's, it's a really crucial it issue. Is. It is. And I think one of the things as well that um, this is the world over in philanthropy, this is not just locally, um, but people can be very, very generous towards, for example, a capital appeal and get very involved in seeing something being built. Hugely important, absolutely vital. <laughs> Trying to get running costs covered thereafter can be much more challenging. So, you know, I, you have to be so cautious, don't you, where what you build. So, um, so you know, so we could do a, probably a capital appeal and build uh, hospice three times as big, but, but my goodness, we wouldn't then be able to run it. So mm. it, it's, you've got to have that balance between the running costs. And like I say, being, if we can provide fantastic care in the community, um, then we need to be mindful of meeting that demand going forward. So it's a combination of both. It's having those beds, having that access to the beds, but also um, re recognising that the, the community care is also a fantastic part of that service. Mm. It's a really incredible service. And you know, people all over the country naturally have benefited from the hospice movement. But I think in, in the eastern part of Suffolk in particular, people have put a huge value on the work that's carried out by St Elizabeth. So... It's been wonderful just to hear all about it. So, so much, Judy, and thank you for you and your team and all the work which they do. It's absolutely phenomenal. Thank you for very much giving us this chance to talk more um, at length. It really is wonderful. Thank you, Colin. So thank you for joining us on the Suffolk Money podcast supported by Kingsfleet Wealth. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this conversation with one of Suffolk's interesting fascinating people if there is a story that you've got for us please do get in touch by visiting our website which is www.suffolkmoney.co.uk we also have a facebook page that you can like and follow and you can access all our podcasts through all the normal providers if there's anything that you'd like to get in touch with us about please do so but please do subscribe and rate this podcast so that you're able to then get the latest update whenever a new edition is provided.